Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, July 8th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's financial show, we're going to dig into the recent jobs report. Earnings season's getting ready to start, so we're going to talk about what that means for banks. We've also got another interesting listener question to deliberate this week. And as always, we've got ones to watch for you. As Mostly usual, I guess. You know, we've had a little bit of stretch here, Matt. We're kind of we've been missing each other, right? But but joining me in the studio today is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. Yeah, I haven't talked to you in forever. I feel like it when I was up like there, I had Dylan while. in the studio. Then we had a week off. Then you did one with Dan instead. I think and there's been this void in my life. I was kind of wondering <laughs> what it was, and now I mean, you know, I, I'm feeling a little happier. And, and obviously, it was just. I was missing you, Matt. But hey. To be fair, Dan's probably just as fun as me when it comes to hosting a podcast. <laughs> well, I think, you know, we've got a very good team. It's nice that there's no real single point of failure, and that ultimately is the goal here. Um, okay, so Matt, let's kick it because we've got a lot to talk about this week. And in last week we got the the jobs report in, and you know, the headline there. I think was ultimately a good one. Non-farm payrolls rose 224,000 in the month of June, beating the market's expectations of 165,000. Um, now, I mean, we know that really the story when it comes to the jobs report it really is all about the the adjusted numbers. You know, a few months from now they'll look back, they'll make some adjustments, and that'll paint a little bit more of a of a picture of what really is going on. But generally speaking, feels like it was a pretty good report there. Uh, what what did you take away from this? It, it, worth noting, too, that, that the unemployment rate actually ticked up uh, slightly. Uh, that's just really more of a uh, you know math problem than anything else. But but overall, what was your what was your take on the report? Well I mean obviously it was a big, you know, upside surprise. Um, but it's the point is that there's so much talk of a recession's coming, a recession's coming, the economy's going to slow down, you know, et cetera. But it hasn't really been reflected in the data. And a lot of people were expecting it to really be reflected in this June jobs number, and it just wasn't. So the market's really expecting the Fed to start cutting rates and to start doing it really soon, as in this month's meeting. Um, in fact, there is a, pr- a pretty decent chance of a, of a double rate cut. Is according to the market, they were expecting a, you know, either a twenty-five or a fifty basis point rate cut before this jobs report, um, and with great jobs numbers, it's really tough to justify cutting rates. Um, it's really interesting to mention, however, that currently there's a zero percent chance that the Fed won't cut rates priced into the market. I wouldn't be as surprised if they didn't as the market seems they would be. Yeah. But the biggest change is that the expectation for a double rate cut, you know, a 50 basis point rate cut, has really gone down. It's gone down from 20% to a 7% chance based on kind of the futures markets over the past week in a direct response to this jobs report. So expectations are definitely kind of tapering as far as what the Fed's going to do. But I don't know if they've tapered enough, to be honest with you. Well, and it seems like, I mean, to your point about the recession, I mean, we sit there and we talk about it. It feels like we've been talking about this market that's been overvalued for the better part of, I don't know, seven years maybe now. <laughs> it feels like we've been having that conversation in, and we haven't really seen any type of a material pullback. Certainly that recession uh, hasn't occurred yet. And, and I, I have a feeling that. 
you know, we're going to keep on talking about it, and then one day it's going to happen, and we're going to be like, see, I told you so. We were just waiting for it. I mean, it, it is a recession is a matter of when, not if, but it really does seem like it seems like today at least the the politicians in DC are are really trying to figure out a way to not ever have a recession at all. <laughs> and I mean, I, I guess I get that. I mean, but by the same token, I mean, we know how the market's ebbs and flows work, right? I mean, it's a cycle. And, and I mean, you do look at some of these companies out here today. That, I mean, these companies that are doing great things, but some of the, some of a lot of these valuations still don't make a lot of sense. They're really baking in a tremendous amount of success uh, w- with businesses that haven't really shown or proven any long-term sustained success. They just haven't been around that long. So I mean I, I kind of am giving I'm kind of feeling like I really would love to see just the Fed sort of butt out of this for a minute and kind of let things go. Let the chips fall where they may. All right. I mean we're we're at a point where I don't know that unemployment can get much better. Right. And, and even still in today's job market, you still have people who are feeling like they're being somewhat left behind when it comes to wages. Right, and I mean, you, you, I can understand, like you said, why you know all the politicians in Washington don't don't seem to want a recession ever. No one gets reelected <laughs> while a recession's going on. I mean, it's, no, it's very no, tough. They do to. not. <laughs> so um, that's definitely easy to understand, and I can get the case for a rate cut. Um, you know, the Fed's there to maximize employment and control inflation. We have no inflation. Yeah. So. In, from that part of the dual mandate, it's really tough to make the case that a rate cut's not a good idea. Um, you know, the Fed wants two percent inflation; they're not getting that, so a rate cut could theoretically help, you know, boost that a little bit. But we are pretty much full employment. Um, like you said, some stock valuations are just astronomical right now. There's some that I won't touch just on valuation alone. Um, not not banks. Banks are actually pretty nicely valued right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing is, if the I, I'd I'd love to see the Fed not cut rates. Um, I'd like to see them save some ammunition for when there's actually a recession, <laughs> like when we actually get some real negative data. So they have, you know, right now they have what nine rate cuts they could possibly make to try to combat any slowing economy. I'd like them to save that for when the economy actually appears to be slowing down. Well, right. I mean, well, so to that point there, okay, assuming we hit a point where um, the you know what does hit the fan, um, if, if the Fed you know, starts utilizing all of the tools it has in its toolbox today, I mean, what if they run out of ammo when they really need it? I mean, what are the options that are left there? I mean, because I don't know that you really have a whole, whole heck of a lot left. I mean, other than you just start. You know, jumping back into that whole quantitative easing cycle, which I doesn't really feel like we've we've fully gotten out of that to, to begin with. No, well, they're they're actually starting to. They've been winding down the balance sheet. They could potentially end that is and cut rates at the same time if they want to kind of do kind of a neutral neutralish option. But yeah, there's always quantitative easing, but no one wants it to get to that point. Um, you know, that's essentially like lowering lowering rates past zero. It's, yeah. It's like nobody really wants it to come to that. So I I personally like him to keep um a lot of ammunition. Not just and and as a bank investor, um, you know, keeping rates a little bit higher for longer would be a good catalyst for bank earnings too. So I I'd like to see them kind of hold steady, but it doesn't look like the market's expecting that at all. Right now there's a ninety three percent chance priced in of one cut, 
a hundred percent chance of at least one cut in in the July meeting. So the market's not really expecting them to hold steady. Well, I guess we will find out soon enough. Um, but let's jump over to uh, earnings. You you brought up bank earnings, and we've got earnings Palooza getting ready to start up again. And you know, this is always, I think, a fun time for stock nerds like us, just because it gives us something to do. I mean, something to read, something to talk about. Um, you know, it's it's always. It's always interesting to find out what's going on under the hood, so to speak. And it, it does look like, you know, we look at some of these, some of the data that comes out, fact set data shows that actually uh, earnings, uh, third quarter SP 500 earnings are forecast to actually show a decline now versus a modest gain uh, not all that long ago. Uh, we talk a lot about, on the, we talk on this show a lot about the, the bank earnings and how, you know, banks have been working in somewhat of a challenging environment. With these low interest rates, it just hasn't given them um, a lot of wiggle room in regard to profitability. It doesn't seem like that is going to be getting any easier anytime soon. Um, what's what's your headline here as we go into earnings season for the banks in particular? Well, first of all, the banks are not going to be part of that earnings decline that you're talking about. Not the big banks, anyway, for the most part. The Point to remember with the banks is that they've been buying back stock hand over fist over the past year. Yeah. So if you buy back, say, 10% of your outstanding shares and your earnings per share jumps up by 10% as a result, you really didn't earn any more money. You're just, it, it, the buybacks are very distortive of bank earnings. We call that putting lipstick on a pig, Matt? Yes. Is that too I've, hard? I've heard that expression. <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, Citigroup's the first one to report on Monday. And um, they're expected to report a nice earnings gain. I want to say the, the consensus is for about 18% year over year. But the majority of that is going to be due just to buybacks. Yeah. So, with the banks, the thing to keep in mind is when it comes to the actual headline number and how, to com- how it compares with the year before, take that with a big grain of salt. The thing I would pay most attention to is how interest rate dynamics and any economic headwinds are affecting the bank's profitability. Um, for example, we've... As the Fed was, has been raising rates over the past couple of years, we've seen interest margins expand for the most part at these big banks. Sure. So yeah. So and that's a great you know side effect of of rising rates. The Fed hasn't cut rates yet, but the market's kind of expecting them to. So we want to see if you know if any if that's kind of factoring into anything at all. If they say anything about it during their conference calls. Um, the other thing is any economic headwinds are. Is our lo- loan volumes picking up or slowing down? Slowing loan volumes, especially when it comes to like credit cards and things like that, mm-hmm. can be a really good indicator that consumers' confidence is starting to starting to tick downward a little bit. So, with bank earnings, it's really—I mean—it's always important to read behind, be- between the lines when it comes to earnings. But with banks, just because of the massive buybacks, it's really important this time to to read, kind of read between the lines and see how the the major indicators are playing out. Yeah, and I mean it's going to be really um I think we're going to we're going to hear a lot of the rhetoric starting to pick up here as we inch closer to, you know, 2020 and it is obviously a very big election season. Um it's going to be very very interesting to see all of these forces at play here because it certainly seems like everybody's on a different page. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And um I I would definitely keep an eye 
what's going on in these banks uh, all next week. We're lucky in the banking sector because we get to see, you know, the first glance of how everything's doing this quarter. Um, you got Citigroup head- kicking things off on Monday. Tuesday, you got JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs. Wednesday, Bank of America and U.S. Bank. Uh, Thursday, Morgan Stanley, Capital One, BB&T. Theirs will be really interesting because they have the merger coming up. And Friday, you have American Express and Regions, just to name the big ones. And that's all next week. So we will be glued to our televisions and news feeds next week, I can tell you that much. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about on this show for the coming months. So, uh, hey, you know, keep your Slack channel open because I'm sure we'll be kicking around some ideas. Um, okay, let's jump out of the banks here for a second. I want to talk about a listener question I fielded recently at Fool Fest. You know, we've talked about um, our big investor conference, I guess is the best way to put it here, that, that we had recently. Fool Fest is a uh, a great event we have every every year, and uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand members descended on uh, our area here this year for us. And one of one of those members, Bob Claude, he and I were speaking uh, one day, uh, talking about our show here. He was he had a lot of nice things to say about the show, um, and one thing that he was asking um, us to consider. Discussing, you know, we talk a lot about the war on cash and this move towards a cashless society and all of the great things that come from it. Um, and, and Bob's question really was, "Hey, you know, you're not talking about the flip side of that necessarily as much as I'd like to hear." And I think there's some valid, uh, valid observations to take away from that. And, and you know, I agree with him. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the drawbacks of going to a cashless society. Um, and, and Matt, I mean, I'll go ahead and. and and let you kick it off here, but you know we do talk all all the time about uh, you know these investments in in these companies that are helping spearhead this move towards a cashless society. But there are some side effects there uh, from less cash, and uh, I wonder what are what's what's the first thing that comes to your mind there? The you know one of the one of the problems that comes the drawback from a cashless society. Well, there. When I was kicking around this idea before this, before we started recording, there's three big ones I could think of. Okay. Um, the first one, from a consumer standpoint, is the vulnerability of your money. Um, obviously, cash can get stolen out of your wallet, but the flip side of that is all these, you know, data breaches, the hacking incidents, um, banks, electronic portals go down all the time. I oh, yeah. had trouble getting into my bank this morning, actually. And if that's your only money. If all if there's no cash and all of your money is electronic, it just creates like a big risk, like having all your eggs in one basket. Sure. If your if your bank crashes one day, and all of your money ha- has to do with you know electronic transactions, yeah, that's a problem. So that's number one. Um, number two, also from the consumer's perspective, that a transition to cash, and we've talked about this on the show before, disproportionately affects certain groups of the population particularly lower income individuals and older individuals who may not, you know, they may be reluctant to switch to new technologies or just not really understand how they work. Right. So it could, you know, leave a lot of, they call this the underbanked population. They mm-hmm. it could leave a lot of this group of the population behind and make, make day-to-day transactions a little more difficult for them. And then third, from a merchant's point of view is paying transaction fees. Yeah. Right now, let's say you own a small business. Let's say uh, Jason owns a restaurant. I, I, I go to Moser's Cafe. Of course but. you would. I mean, there is Jason's <laughs> Deli out there, but you know, listen, that's not mine. So, 
It'd be cool if it was. Eh, you know, I'd be yeah, I'd probably have a sandwich on that menu named after you, Matt. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say he owns uh, you know Jason's Cafe, not to be confused with Jason's Deli. <laughs> Uh, let's say that half of the customers pay with cards right now and half pay with cash. On average, he's paying about a 3% interchange fee for every card transaction. If 100% of those transactions were now in the form of cards, he's now paying a fee on 100% of his business. And that doesn't sound like much, you know, a 3% fee. But when it's replacing all of your cash business, which you're currently paying no fee on, from a merchant, that's a pretty big deal, especially in a low a low profit margin business like a restaurant or a convenience store or something like that. It can be a very so big there deal. are there are some downsides for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think um, to your point there. I mean, there there are a lot of costs involved with a with with this you know electronic money system that we're working with today. And and the thing is, you know, you don't feel or see those costs necessarily from the consumer side all that often. Uh, but when you you know you put the shoe on the other foot there as as the the merchant, you know you're counting every penny. I would imagine, um, and you know it, I I think a lot about these. We've seen uh, small businesses make that attempt to go to you know no cash accepted. It's it's you know cards and and electronic payments only. And you know that does seem to me like if, I mean if I'm if I'm a small business owner if I own my own business I think I would open myself up to you know cash and cashless options. I mean I want my customer base to be as big as it possibly can be. So so you do want to accept everyone. Um, it, it just you have to you have to understand that managing a cash drawer there are. Uh, downsides that come with that. Obviously, you're you're having to deal with running to the bank every so often, or you're having to to you know deal with the threat of someone robbing your shop one day. So I do see the benefits there of of going cashless, but by the same token, it does seem like you're cutting out a valuable customer base. Um, you know, in in one one thing that Bob and I were talking about, and this just comes from the the parents' perspective, um, cash is a great educational tool for kids. I mean, I think back to when I was. I was younger, and I think about the lessons that I learned um, in in dealing with money and making money and spending money and managing money. I mean, it all really centered around cash. I mean, I had my own little business where I just mowed lawns in the neighborhood every summer, and you know, my dad made a deal with me one summer where if I saved up enough money to buy, uh, you know, to pay for half of this new set of golf clubs that I wanted, then he would match the other half and help me get them. And so, you know, I went by. I was mowing yards, and I mean, listen, these people weren't paying me with Venmo. I mean, it was 1978, 1982, or whatever. And so, I mean, I was getting cash, and I would take that cash home and I would give it to my dad and. And then when the time came, I mean, I had to, you know, actually hand him that cash in order to go get those golf clubs. So there was the feeling of that exchange. There was that transaction. I was giving up something to get something in return. And today, you don't necessarily have that, right? I mean, kids are just clicking a button and getting something immediately. And there's not that same sense of loss. And that can that can have an impact, I think. You don't learn perhaps the the value of of a dollar, so to speak, uh, quite as quite as easily as maybe we we did uh, 
before. So, I mean, I think that's where, you know, as parents, I mean, I think piggy banks serve wonderful uh, educational tools there and, and, you know, getting some cash involved with that kid's life so they can understand how money does work. Because, I mean, I'm sure every parent out there has uh, dealt with giving their kid five bucks and then finding that five dollars sitting on their floor of their room <laughs> um, with all of their dirty clothes. And you're thinking, oh, my God, what does this kid not understand? This is actual money here. And if you destroy it, then it's gone. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's an educational uh, you know purpose there that cash serves that um, – I certainly I try to incorporate that in, into our girls' lives still, um, but it's just not as easy. Uh, yeah, definitely, but, my three-year-old daughter has a piggy bank in her room, and I can't wait for the day in like ten years when one of her friends comes over and doesn't know what's inside of it. <laughs> Is that candy? <laughs> no, close. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hey, listen, for all of y'all out there, I mean, yeah, we love to talk about the merits of a cashless society, but I, I'll stand firm. I do believe cash still serves a purpose, and and I am not rooting for cash to disappear. I just uh, I like the convenience and and having the options. So, uh, good question. Thanks for the topic. Bob and I hope we, uh, or topic Bob and I hope we gave you something to something to think about there. Uh, okay, Matt, let's wrap up this week. Here we got one to watch time. Uh, what is your one to watch for this coming week? Um, I'm looking at Deutsche Bank um, D, ticker symbol DB. Uh, they just a- announced a giant restructuring plan. They're cutting 18,000 jobs over the next few years. Um, if you're curious, that is a big number, but they have 92,000 right now. So it's not you know they're not cutting 80 percent of their workforce. Right. Um, they're closing their global equities uh, sales desk and their trading desk. They're creating a so-called bad bank, kind of like Citigroup did at the end of the financial crisis with City Holdings. Yeah. Um, and the goal, obviously, is to improve profitability and stability. Um, they say that this plan will cut costs by a quarter. Market's not thrilled with it. The stock was down by 6% this morning when I just checked. Um, so I'm not saying it's a buy, but it's definitely one to keep an eye on as this progresses and if you are are a long-term investor and want to, you know, take a take a risk and think that this is going to be a great institution 10 years from now, it could be worth a look. Yeah. Yeah, I think um and anytime you see companies right-sizing their cost structure, I mean, it does, you know, their lives that are impacted by that, but from the business perspective from the investor's perspective it's usually a good thing um, so always something to keep in mind there um, I'm gonna go with Ameris Bank Corp a company that obviously we've talked about a lot before here and uh, they just closed the fidelity deal we were talking about the big acquisition of fidelity Bank in, in Atlanta so that's good they finally got that knocked out um, a bit of a surprise recently in um, CEO Dennis Zember. You may remember that we interviewed Dennis back in February on this show. Um, Dennis Zember has stepped down, according to the company. Based, uh, there were some personal and some family issues, uh, and and he felt he needed to step away. Uh, so it sounds like uh, Palmer Proctor, who is with Fidelity, he served as the president of Fidelity, uh, will be uh, taking over as the CEO of the newly combined. Uh, bank there, which will continue to be known as Ameris Bank Corp. Uh, so we'll have a new CEO to get to know. Um, this wasn't really quite a merger of equals. Ameris was the bigger of the two, but I do like the exposure it gets to some very lucrative lending markets. Um, you know, banks need to get bigger in order for investors to benefit from that, and it does seem like Ameris is doing the right stuff here to get bigger. Um, and who knows? We'll reach out to to. 
Amaris and see if we can't maybe speak with Palmer Proctor one day. That'd be a, a nice interview to get on the show here. But uh, again, I think it's good they've got that acquisition all wrapped up there. And and so now it's uh, onward and upward, hopefully. And uh, we'll be keeping an eye on it. So, Matt, thanks a lot for joining this week. It's good talking to you again. Always good to be here. Okay, and as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.